everyone, and welcome to the Halloween edition of the Flight Test Safety Podcast. I am, I am your, your host, host, your ghost host. <laughs> Sorry, keeps doing that. I'm your host, Art Tomasetti. Now, last Halloween, we talked about the number 13 and some of the superstitions around it. But we found out that in aviation, it wasn't 13, but 191 that showed up more frequently in bad situations. We also learned about an A6 intruder that the squadron had nicknamed Christine because they believed it was cursed. Now, of course, you'd have to be a Stephen King fan to get that reference. And if you are a fan of that particular author, you hopefully have learned a few important life lessons from reading his books. First, and most important of all, never under any circumstances visit the state of Maine, especially the town of Derry. Second, while 99 red balloons may be fun and get your toes tapping, one red balloon is bad. Very bad. Third, if it doesn't look right, feel right, or seem right, it most likely isn't. Fourth, all work and no play makes, well, let's just say it's good to maintain a healthy work-life balance. And finally, machines may actually be trying to kill you. Which brings us to this month's focus topic. It is a tale about a machine, a hovering jet aircraft, known as an AV-8B Harrier. An aircraft whose six-digit serial number started with 163, and yes, you might have guessed it, ended with 666. An aircraft that had mysterious, unexplained issues like lights going dim on their own, or a tendency to change heading of its own volition. An aircraft that the squadron believed was cursed, that would eventually meet its end one fateful day in, well, let's leave that for our story. Okay. One of the great things about doing this podcast is I get to talk to a lot of great people and I get to connect with uh, friends from the past. And joining me today is one of those going all the way back to my days as a Harrier pilot, uh, retired Colonel Kevin Gross, call sign Smells, joining us on the podcast with uh, something appropriate for this particular time of year. Smells, thanks very much for agreeing to do this. And if you could start off just giving the audience a little bit of your background. Yeah, thank you, Turbo. Uh, very happy to be here today. You remember we first met in uh, the storm, uh, 1990, 1991 at King Abdul Aziz Naval Base. Yeah. And then we crossed paths again in, uh, 91, I think it was, uh, 92 maybe, during our weapons and tactics instructor, um, training at Yuma. Uh, went on to, uh, Naval Test Pilot School, uh, in 95. So I thought I was going to be testing Harriers back in China Lake, but instead, the V-22 test team wanted someone with vector thrust integrated avionics glass cockpit experience, so I joined the V-22 program, and I had the privilege of flying spray during the flight test events twice, first time as a test pilot and second time after two uh, fatal mishaps that grounded the program, I lost uh, four good pilot friends and 19 brother Marines uh, that grounded the uh, V-22 program for 18 months. I came back and led the uh, flight test as the government's uh, flight test director. Um, after that, went to the program off, picked up 06, uh, command of the Marine Aviation Detachment out at China Lake. I think you were also mad, Pax River about that time. Right. And then I ended my active duty uh, career as the senior military advisor to then uh, Dr. J. Michael Gilmore, director of operational testing evaluation at, at the Pentagon. And that was a, a fabulous tour. 
And then post-career, I wanted to return to supporting the fleet and ended up at Point Magoo as a Navy civilian and um, have been uh, leading the Threat Target Systems Department for the Navy. Okay, great. Now, most of us probably don't believe that uh, aircraft and or machines are haunted, but you've got an unusual one about Aircraft Bureau number 163666 that you want to share. So I'll let you tell the story. I do. Thank you. So way back in 1988, it was November, and I joined the, the VMA 311 Tomcat stationed at Marine Corps Air Station Yuma. The squadron had just transitioned from the A4 Mike, and we had our first four brand new Harriers with a plan to receive 16 more. And at that time, McDonald Douglas was producing several Harriers every month and delivering them across the fleet. So it didn't take long uh, to deliver our jump jets to the Tomcats. We received in quick succession 163661, 163662, and then 163666. Every jet that arrived, new from production, underwent an acceptance inspection that cross-checked every system and component against the aircraft logbook. Whiskey Lima letters, as well as our Tomcat, was painted on the vertical tail, along with a modex on the tail and the nose. Most acceptance inspections take about three days, maybe a week to complete, right. followed by the post-maintenance check flight in the, in the flying portion of the acceptance. The maintenance department is well-practiced in the acceptance procedures until 163666 arrived on our flight line. That jet was trouble, as you say, potentially haunted, but that jet was trouble from the moment she landed in Yuma. It took more than two weeks to accept that jet. Our maintainers tested the hydraulic systems um, many times, and each test indicating the contamination levels that were uh, required flushing through filters and testing again. She eventually had clean hydraulic fluid to continue acceptance. Uh, for uh, logbook entries, we noticed that there are component serial numbers transposed, which further delayed the acceptance test flight. And it was noted that no other logbooks had component serial number errors. So we don't understand why 163666 uh, had those uh, challenges. Huh, interesting. Because of the acceptance troubles, the maintenance team wanted to assign the Modex 13 to the jet and paint one three on the <laughs> tail and the nose cone. Unlucky 13, right? right. But the maintenance officer just denied that request and 163666 became Whiskey Lima 07, the seventh jet on our flight line. However, the hydraulics and airframes team uh, painted the Tomcat on the tail with red eyes uh, instead of uh, black eyes, which gave the Tomcat a very creepy look on the flight line. <laughs> and this was now in the December, January timeframe of 1988. Right. Um, when it came to flying, uh, Whiskey Lima 7, bureau, bureau number 163666, flew about half the number of flights flown by the other jets on the flight line. Uh, we were flying the hell out of the jet. If you remember those days where we had brand new jets that were performing very well and we were flying uh, every single day. Oh, yeah. However, when flying Whiskey Lima 7, the pilots would complain about radio static that could not be duplicated by maintenance or about cockpit lights that would dim and brighten on their own. 
Sometimes the jet would be difficult to trim during straight and level airways flights, like it was bent, and maintenance could not verify those gripes. Every complaint that the pilot would write post-mission could not be duplicated by maintenance, and that aircraft logbook was filled with A799 gripes that maintenance could not identify and fix. So Whiskey Lima 7 had a bad reputation with the pilot and the maintainers alone. And just so everyone knows, A799 was the code associated with a pilot complaint or pilot gripe that couldn't be duplicated by maintenance. Looking back at my logbook, I flew 163666 three times between December 88 and April of 89. And um, honestly, I don't recall uh, problems with, with the jet that I experienced, but reading through the aircraft discrepancy logbook, um, I saw discrepancy after discrepancy that maintenance just could not uh, duplicate. Right. So now, now we're into October of 1989. Uh, the Tomcats were invited to participate in Red Flag 90 TAC 1 at Nellis Air Force Base from 21 October to 4 November. Um, I deployed to Las Vegas with the skipper in the main body, while the rear body with executive officer uh, and a few new lieutenants remained in Yuma to continue um, flight training. Because Whiskey Lima 7 was considered to be a problem child, she remained in Yuma and did not join the flyers for the red flag mission. The rear party consisted of the XO and two new uh, pilots along with a small maintenance team. So group pilots were available to augment as instructors to keep the new pilots moving through the syllabus. On October 31st of 1989, a Nugget First Lieutenant was flying uh, Whiskey Lima 07, Bureau number 163666, for a low-altitude tactics training mission on the Barry M. Goldwater Range Complex uh, R-2301 West, just east of Yuma. The augment pilot from the group was a very senior captain, lat instructor. The flight started well and entered the restricted airspace to begin the lat training, while at 200 foot, Whiskey Lima 7 experienced a dual deck failure with large red flashing lights, informing the pilot that the digital engine control system failed and that the pilot was not in control of the engine. The first lieutenant knocked it off, immediately climbed, and told the instructor about the dual deck failure. Um, I don't believe he executed the bold-faced immediate action procedures, but started a question and response uh, between the first lieutenant and the senior instructor. Right. And that communication resulted in performing incorrect emergency procedures. Mm. Uh, and the engine was shut down. So now Whiskey Lima 7 had an engine failure and the jet would not respond to the lieutenant's low-altitude engine start checklist. Right. The first lieutenant ended up ejecting, and Whiskey Lima 7, bureau number 163666, with a Tomcat and a red eye, crashed on the desert floor on October 31st of 89. That troubled jet that took so long to go through an acceptance and had challenges uh that could not be duplicated in a very thick aircraft discrepancy book, that troubled jet with red Tomcat eyes was no longer in the squadron. Right. And then the mishap board and the safety investigation began. Wow, that's quite a story. 
that was a very, very interesting time for the Tomcats because we were performing so well at Red Flag. And then the rear party had, had a mishap that uh, we had to come back and um, slowly put pieces together to understand exactly what happened with that so that it wouldn't happen again. Right. So um, anyone who's been around airplanes probably understands, but for those who may not know this, you mentioned that you had <clears throat> gripes on the airplane that you know pilots came back, said something was wrong, but when maintenance went to go check it out, they could not be duplicated, as you referred to as A799, could not duplicate the, the problem. And some people would say, okay, you have a lot of those, you just give the airplane back. But but we, we know it's not that simple, right? Because when you can't prove there's anything wrong with the airplane, there's there's no reason to stop flying it. So um, you know, now with, with hindsight that you have after all this, do you think there was anything else that could have been done um, prior to the incident to potentially avoid what happened? That's a good question. And I don't know that there's anything that could be done because there's no definitive evidence of something that failed. Our, our avionics technicians, um, our, our electricians, our airframes, our power plant mechanics are are all incredibly smart and and very good at their job. And when they went to troubleshoot, um, they were very thorough and meticulous in their process, but they could not find anything wrong. They couldn't explain why cockpit lights would would dim almost to the point of being completely black cockpit or or come on so bright that it, it, it really hurt the pilot's eyes. They couldn't explain why straight and level the aircraft would just start wandering off off heading like it was bent um, and, and, and couldn't maintain a, a straight uh, a flight path. Um, so because of that, you know, people just knew that they had to be more aware when flying one six three six 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 than the other aircraft. Right, and you know, I don't know if you can share what came out of the investigation, but uh, can you share if uh, after the investigation was complete and uh, all that stuff was, you know, published and put out, were, were there any changes that happened with the squadron relative to dealing with problem airplanes? Um, the uh, Mishap Investigation Board came out, um, recited the importance of understanding the boldface emergency procedures and, and, and performing those before communicating, you know, the old adage, aviate, navigate, communicate, um, performing those boldface immediate action items immediately. Uh, so that you don't get yourself into a corner that you can't get out of, um, as, as this young pilot did. In terms of maintenance procedures, um, they reevaluated the aircraft acceptance and, um, established a, a, a better relationship, I think, with production so that when challenges, um, were discovered during acceptance, we had reached back to McDonnell Douglas to uh, help provide expertise um, at the squadron level through tech reps um, should that type of uh, uh, problem occur in the future. Okay, so I've got to ask because it's the Halloween episode and all. And I don't know, some people think pilots are superstitious. Some people think pilots are not superstitious. But 
So the aircraft comes to you as 163666, and that's a number assigned by the government. You can't do anything about that. But you make the decision not to go ahead and paint the number 13 as the squadron tail number on it. But you do go ahead and paint the red eyes on the Tomcat on the tail flash. Do you think that made things worse? That you angered or encouraged whatever it was that possessed that airplane? Uh, there's potential for that, certainly. <laughs> I know that the uh, airframers that painted those red eyes really didn't like the jet. Um, and so that was their way of telling everybody, hey, watch out. This is this is almost like the Christine of um, Harriers on the Yuma flight line. Uh, watch, watch out for this jet. Pay attention. Okay, so let's bring up something our listeners can discuss and maybe consider in their organizations. And that is a topic of pass down. Now, your aircraft 163666 had a lot of issues, though many of them couldn't be duplicated on the ground by maintenance. They were all documented in the ADB or the Aircraft Discrepancy Book. Now, I've been in units that had an additional pass down set of notes specific to a tail number, usually written by pilots that gave you a bit more than what was in the maintenance books. Did 311 have anything like that at the time? No, everything was contained within that aircraft discrepancy book. And and normally, uh, an aircraft discrepancy book for most jets is a, a, a one-inch three-ring binder. But 163666 had so many gripes that they had to uh, change that and swap that out to a three-inch uh, three-ring binder. Uh, just because of the volume of, of discrepancies. Uh, the maintenance officer considered, you know, pulling out older discrepancies, uh, older than a month, but elected not to because he wanted uh, the entire history to be available to that pilot before he or she signs the A sheet to accept that pilot to go flying. A maintenance book that's bigger than all the others tells you something, right? <laughs> It, it certainly does. It, it has its own story to tell. There's there's more to that aircraft than uh, the, the logbook, and you really have to pay attention. And then just trying to connect the dots from that experience into your later career, and then maybe even into your flight test experience on the subject of you know passed down kind of information. And, and I guess you could even sort of loosely connect it to lessons learned. Um, do you have examples from your flying where you could say that, hey, the, the pass down I got from someone who had previously flown the airplane or from, you know, someone in the flight brief made you more prepared to deal with the airplane that day. For our, our test assets, for our test aircraft, we had a, a very small um, flight line of, of aircraft. Um, our first four um, engineering manufacturing development aircraft were hand built, um, Osprey 7 8 nine and ten. Osprey seven was our, our avionics um, test article. Osprey eight was our fully instrumented test article. Um, aircraft uh, nine and ten had less instrumentation, but were still u- uniquely built um, by hand before we started the, the large uh, production assembly in Amarillo, Texas. So going to Going to the the plant uh, where these uh, aircraft were hand built and and being involved from the beginning, we we all learned through a very small pilot office uh, the unique characteristics of each aircraft. And I had the privilege of ferrying aircraft uh, Osprey Eight 
from uh, production in Arlington, Texas, to Patuxent River, Maryland. And I'm almost embarrassed to say that Osprey 8 is now retired in a museum piece outside the gate of uh, Pax River, Maryland. But knowing the aircraft as well as we did, um, we we didn't necessarily have additional past town within our own pilot community. But what we would do is, after every test mission, write up our our pilot daily, document the the test points that we conducted that day, and any nuances that we uh, felt were 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 needed, and then we shared that pilot daily with the next pilot so that um, he was aware of where where we were, what occurred, and any challenges or or um, anomalies that occurred during that uh, test flight. So it was that, that pilot daily, I think, that was really the, the continuity of uh, communicating both the test program and also the status of the aircraft. Uh, from pilot to pilot uh, as we uh, continued in our flight test program. Okay. All right, Smells. Hey, thanks very much for taking the time out today to share that uh, slightly spooky story about 163666. And as I do with all of the guests on the podcast, I give you a chance here to, to share any words of wisdom with our listening audience that you have, you know, either from your experience with that jet or just in general from your flying career. Yeah, thank you, Turbo. I really appreciate the opportunity to share this experience. Um, the one thing I would say, uh, we, we go to meticulous care as test pilots to make sure that the, the normal procedures and the op and the, uh, emergency procedures are, are fully developed and, and finely tuned. So it's incumbent on, on <clears throat> all pilots to know the bold-faced emergency procedures and be ready to perform them without hesitation, almost without without thinking. Right. Yes, there is thought that goes into uh, switching switches, um, making sure that the, the procedures are executed properly. Uh, but there's a possibility in this case that had the pilot regained control of the engine by selecting manual fuel, followed by very slow and careful throttle control, that jet could have been returned to the flight line to continue uh, flying for the squadron. Right. So I would say know your bold-faced procedures and be ready to execute them without hesitation. All right. Thanks, Smells. Very much appreciate your time today, and have a happy and safe Halloween. Thank you, Turbo. You as well. So, an aircraft with serial number ending in 666 on the tail, suffering from unexplained failures, exhibiting unusual behavior, and ultimately crashing on Halloween. Cursed? Haunted? Well, if you're the superstitious type, maybe. If you have a spooky or unusual aircraft story like this, I would love to hear about it. Seems like there are more than a few out there. And here's two questions to consider. First, how many could not duplicate type events on an aircraft are too many. And second, how do you pass down additional info for your aircraft that goes beyond the mandatory reporting stuff? Well, that'll wrap us up for this Halloween edition. Have a safe Halloween and steer clear of cabins in the woods, eerie lights, strange noises, and of course, clowns. Until next time, be safe, be smart, and be ready.
The Flight Test Safety Podcast is sponsored by Time to Climb Training and Consulting. Motivate your team to succeed, accelerate towards your goals, and elevate to a higher level of performance. On the web at www.time2climb.com.